Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It was uh, three weeks ago that we started this look at Isaiah and talked about the significance of the signs that God gives to back up his promises that he makes to us. We're going to continue that series this morning by looking at Isaiah chapter 8. And one of the questions that I want us to think about is that age-old Christian dilemma of what it means to be in the world but not of the world. It's one of our perennial debates. This is one of those things that when Christians momentarily grow tired of arguing about free will and predestination, we go ahead and say, hey, let's talk about not of the world, but in the world. Let's argue over that. And I want to think a little bit about the dilemma because it is a real dilemma. What does it mean to be not of this world and yet to be in this world? And how do you live that way? It helps to see where in Scripture this idea comes from. And if you want to find this in the Bible, you have to go to Gethsemane. You have to go to uh, the, the, the moment between the betrayal of Jesus and, and his arrest where you see him praying what we call the high priestly prayer. The reason we call it the high priestly prayer is because here Jesus in his prayer does what priests do for their people. He intercedes for his people. And I want you to get a flavor of what he says. This is in John chapter 17. And I'm going to pick up in the midst of this prayer in verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. If you look at the, the logic of those ideas, the way they flow in the mind of Jesus, it may occur to you that there's a better way to formulate the dilemma. We talk about being in the world, but not of the world. But Jesus actually reverses that order. Right? He flips that. Right? Jesus says the world hates them because they're not of the world, just like I'm not of the world. And then, sadly, he says, don't take them out of the world. For those of you who are hoping to get out of here quickly, don't take them out of the world. Just keep them from the evil one. Preserve them from evil. And then, he says, just as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So it's not in the world, but not of the world. It is not of the world, but sent into the world, which puts a slightly different perspective on things. So what I want to do this morning is try to understand what it means to be not of this world and yet sent into the world. Why? Why have we been sent into the world? What is the, the significance of this sending? And to explore this, I want to look at two don'ts and one let. Two don'ts and one let. Don't fear what the world fears, 
and don't stumble where the world stumbles. Those are the two don'ts. Don't fear what the world fears and don't stumble where the world stumbles. And then one let. Let your hope in Christ be a sign to the world. A sign to the world. So first, don't fear what the Lord fears. Sorry, don't fear what the world fears. Don't fear what the world fears. Here we're going to turn to our text in Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Read along with me. Isaiah says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Pause there for a moment and think about the circumstance of Isaiah. Isaiah is certainly one who's been sent into the world. He's been sent into the world as a prophet to speak a word from the Lord. And if he's going to do that, if he's going to be a prophet, then Isaiah has to stand apart. He has to stand apart from the people. In our day and age, that idea of standing apart, it sounds good. You don't want to just be one of the crowd. Right? You want to be unique. You want to be special. You want to have your own uh, uh, individual identity. So if a prophet's job is to stand apart, that sounds like a good job to have. But as a prophet, Isaiah can't just be a rebel without a cause. There's this particular way in which he has to stand apart. A particular way, and it has to do with fear. God tells him, do not fear what they fear. Do not fear what they fear. The thing that united the people of Isaiah's day and the thing that unites people today is what they fear. What they fear. Fear shapes us. Fear influences us. In Israel, in the immediate context, what they feared was an alliance of enemies who had come down to destroy them. God had promised that that wouldn't happen, but the people feared. Their king was afraid, and the people were afraid, and that fear is what shaped their outlook. And so Isaiah is told, as the prophet who has to speak to the people prophetically, you cannot fear what they fear. You cannot be shaped by the fear that shapes them. If Isaiah had allowed himself to fear, what the people feared, he would not have been able to speak to the people from outside that fear. He would have lost the ability to speak with a prophetic voice, to speak the word of the Lord into that situation. It's kind of like you'll sometimes hear uh, aspiring artists say something like, I want to be the voice of my generation. If your aspiration is to be the voice of your generation, then the one thing that you really cannot do is, is speak prophetically to your generation. All you really do is, is hold up the mirror right, and reflect the times that you live in. You channel the fear that shapes the culture. And so you see that oftentimes in the artists we treasure most in the moment. They tend to be the people who fear what we fear and put our fears into words best that we can hold on to. But a prophet can't be that way. A prophet cannot be shaped by the fear of the people. Instead, he has to be shaped by a different 
kind of fear? The fear of God. God basically says, don't be afraid of your enemies. Be afraid of me. Be afraid of me. Let me shape you, in other words. Let God shape you rather than being shaped by the fear that shapes the world. Let God shape you. The fear of the Lord is a big idea. And the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. It, it talks about reverencing Him, bowing down before Him, acknowledging Him to be God. But there's a, a particular phrase that Isaiah uses here. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. And I think in this context, to understand the fear of the Lord, that holiness is what we need to grab onto. Rather than being afraid of the things that everyone else in the world is afraid of. Instead, honor the Lord as holy. Reverence Him as holy. Allow Him to be the one who shapes the way that you think. To shape your heart. That phrase may sound familiar to you. Him you shall honor as holy. Does it ring a bell? It should, because it comes up later very famously in the New Testament as prophet uh, Isaiah's words tend to do. Right? When Isaiah says something, it does tend to get quoted by New Testament authors. In this case, it's the Apostle Peter. And in 1 Peter 3, Peter actually quotes almost word for word the Greek translation of Isaiah chapter 8, the text that we're looking at. When Peter writes these words, "...have no fear of them, nor be troubled." But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is the go-to passage on apologetics. If you've ever taken a class on talking about your faith, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, that's where we go. Always be ready with that answer for the hope that lies within you. It's interesting to realize, though, that as Peter makes that point, the words that he uses to make it are the words of the prophet Isaiah. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Maybe you can sense the words he changed in his source material. Listen to Isaiah 8 again. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Have you ever wondered whether New Testament authors really believed in the deity of Christ? This should convince you that Peter was convinced. Because you don't do things like this. You don't take the Lord of hosts and put Jesus in His place unless you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, fully God. When Paul tells us not to be conformed to this world, you think about what it takes to be conformed to this world, it's actually pretty easy. Being conformed to the world is the natural outcome of fearing what the world fears. If you share its fears and anxieties, you will share its outlook. You will be one with it. You will be conformed to it. In order not to be conformed, you have to stop fearing what it fears. And instead, honor God. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. If you're afraid of being labeled and being dismissed and 
being ridiculed and being passed over, then that fear shapes your outlook, right? It shapes what you're willing to be and to say and to feel and to think. But you are not into this world. You're not of this world. You're sent into this world. So do not fear what the world fears. Instead, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Do not fear what the world fears. And do not stumble where the world stumbles. When you fear what the world fears, things are turned upside down. Good becomes evil. Blessings seem like curses. Cornerstones become obstacles in your path. Things to trip you up. And that explains why Isaiah's words take a a, a weird turn as we go forward. He he goes from, from sanctuaries to a stone of offense. It sounds really good at first. He says, and he will become a sanctuary. Like, ooh, sanctuary. What what other good things will he become? And then you get this. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. You start with sanctuary, and it sounds like you're about to get a word of encouragement, but the direction shifts, and everything that follows after is just the opposite of that. It's just the opposite of that. You may think that, you know, Isaiah, maybe he was interrupted, and when he came back to his scroll, he forgot he was trying to be optimistic and something like that. But I think there's a deeper truth behind that shift. Because the thing is, the truth has different effects on different people. And the Word of God has different effects on different people. Like to some, the truth of God comes and it liberates, but to others it comes and it condemns. Isaiah knew this already. We're in chapter 8. In chapter 6, when Isaiah is called to be a prophet, he gets what is probably the most demotivating call to the ministry ever. And God says, go out there and proclaim my truth, but let me just warn you, what's going to happen is people are going to hear you, but they're not going to understand They're going to see what you're saying, but they will not perceive the truth. Isaiah has basically been called to a frustrating ministry. He's been called a failure in human terms because he's going to proclaim the truth. And instead of being a sanctuary for the people, it's going to be a stumbling block, a stone of offense. He tells them the truth, but because they fear the world, instead of fearing the Lord, That truth that he proclaims doesn't liberate them. It condemns them. It traps them. It snares them. Because they don't fear what they ought to fear. This is why it's so important for us not to fear what the world fears. Because when you fear what the world fears, the way you receive the truth changes. And and you hear it, but you don't understand it. You see it, but you do not perceive the truth of it. You hollow out what God says. You make it something else. Instead of clearing your path, when you fear what the world fears, instead of clearing your path, the truth trips you up. This passage, too, is one that New Testament authors will work with a lot, trying to understand what it means to say that that this truth becomes a stumbling block. You'll see Peter take this up 
So if we ask, oh, what does it mean to, in the words of Isaiah, fall and be broken or be snared and taken? Peter quotes the passage in 1 Peter 2.8, and then he adds these words. So he quotes this, this line we've just read from Isaiah, which is verse 14 and 15. And then he explains what it means. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here's how it works. You begin to fear what the world fears, and then you stumble where the world stumbles, which means you disobey the word. You disregard the word, the truth that is spoken. You begin to fear what the world fears, then you stumble where the world stumbles, which means you disobey the word. And Paul elaborates further on this disobedience. In Romans 9.33, he takes our passage, Isaiah 8.14, and another passage from Isaiah 28. He puts those things together, and then he explains. They did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as if it were based on works. So Peter says it's disobeying the word. And then Paul zooms in and gets a little bit more specific. He said the problem is... They didn't pursue righteousness by faith. They pursued it as if it were based on works. In other words, instead of grace, what they turned to was moralism. They turned to his moralism. Instead of the grace of God, they turned to their own good works, their own goodness. When you fear what the world fears, you stumble into disobeying the word and you replace grace with moralism. Moralism is how you look right in the eyes of the world. Moralism is, is the path if you want to appear good in the eyes of the world. You order your life in a way that you attempt to be seen as a good person. Grace is the way that you receive righteousness in the eyes of God. It's not about appearances. It's about being. We receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ by grace. So when we fear the world, we stumble into works righteousness, so to speak. When we fear what the world fears, the solutions that we seek are always going to be solutions. They're about ourselves, about doing it ourselves, about being good, distinguishing ourselves from the bad people. But when you fear the Lord, you receive the righteousness of Christ. So we've looked at two don'ts. Don't fear what the world fears. Don't stumble where the world stumbles. And I think the problem with most conversations about how to be in the world but not of the world is that we stop there. We think about that primarily as a question of what you shouldn't be or what you shouldn't do. And we forget to talk about the reason for it all. Like, why are we sent into the world? What is the purpose of being sent into the world? So let's talk about that now. We don't consider the reason why we were sent into the world. So we need to look at the positive reason why. And that's our one let. Let your hope in Christ be a sign to the world. Three weeks ago, when we talked about the way God uses signs, I said that when God makes promises in Scripture, He gives signs to accompany those promises. Right? The signs that He gives 
reinforce or back up or illustrate the promises that he makes. So when we talk about the signs of the sacraments, the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we recognize in those things visible communication, visible representation of the promise that God makes in the Gospel. Why does He give us these signs? For our weakness. Because He knows how weak we are. In our strength and our confidence, we say to ourselves, I don't need that stuff. I don't need signs. I just need the Word. I'll just believe the truth. And you don't need to, to assure me in my weakness because I don't have any of that. But the reality is we do. And the most confident of us stumbles and doubts and has questions and needs the reassurance of the signs that God has given. And yet, God is doing more when He gives signs than merely reassuring human weakness. The signs that God gives are actually a form of revelation. God is actually revealing Himself to us and revealing His character to us through the signs that He gives us. And when you realize this and you look back at the signs in Scripture, things start to change a little bit. The miracles of Jesus, for example, look a little bit different when you recognize that these are revelation. These are acts of revelation telling us something about the nature of God. Jesus turns water into wine. He signifies that He is the Lord of joy. That He's the bridegroom who looks forward to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Right? His first sign, His first miracle is one of joy, of celebration. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, He signifies He is the Lord of plenty. He is the God of providence, the One who provides all of your needs. You do not need to look anywhere else but to Him because Jesus, with nothing, can give you everything. He's the Lord of plenty. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, He signifies that He is the Lord of the grave. He is the victor over death. right? That He has the power to bring life out of death. That He will be raised Himself from the dead. And that all those who are in Christ will be raised again on the last day. The miracles tell us something about who Jesus is. And throughout His life, as He worked wonders, He was also revealing Himself to the world. And the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle is the miracle of regeneration. You think maybe that you don't live in an age of miracles, but if you're in Christ, if your heart of stone it was dead to sin has been made alive again, and you have the, the grace within you enabling you to believe, then you have experienced a miracle. A miracle that has sign value, that says something about the kind of God that you serve but a miracle also that has made you into a sign. A miracle that has made you into a sign. When we look at the signs that God gives, we think of them as, as acts, as events, as things sort of um, that represent. We don't really think of ourselves as having sign value. We don't think that we signify anything, and yet we do. Listen to the words of Isaiah. He says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. 
and I will hope in Him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents. Isaiah sees himself, he sees his children as signs to the world around them. He has good reason to. God has prophesied to Israel that they will not be overcome by their enemies. And the sign that he gives, he gives a number of signs behind this promise. One of them, he actually tells Isaiah, it's time for you to have a kid. He says to him, you need to have a son and you're going to name him this name. And the name that he names him, I'll give you the translation rather than the original. The name that he gives his son translates, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. You're looking for baby names. Isaiah 8 is a great place to go. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. And the significance is, you're going to name this son this name. And before he's able to speak, before he can say, uh, Mama, Daddy, your enemies will have been destroyed. The enemies who are seeking to destroy you, they will have been destroyed before this child can speak his first words. I don't know about you, but if my parents sat me down like age nine and said, guess what? We had you because God needed a symbol. And so we gave you this name that admittedly has been awkward for you in school because God told us to because it, it, it relates to a promise of his. I might be a little offended because the way we tend to think about signs and symbolism is that to say that, that your child is a sign is it reduces what they are. To say they're just a symbol is to say there's something less than what they seem to be. But the way God looks at it is just the opposite. It's just the opposite. The most important thing about this son of Isaiah was that he was a sign. The most important thing about us is that we signify. If you want to know what's important, for example, about your marriage, the most important thing about your marriage, imagine this, what if the most important thing about your marriage is what it says about Christ in the church. Not to reduce the importance of other things, but to say the most important thing is the sign value. The most important thing is the higher reality that it points to. That's the nature of signs in the Bible. The sign doesn't reduce the thing. It actually elevates it. It shows that it has meaning, that it has significance that is larger than itself. We don't believe in meaning any longer. Right? Our culture doesn't have an upper story. Things don't mean anything inherently. The only meaning that there is is the meaning that we give to random things. So we're constantly being told that it's just very human to give order to chaos. It's a very human thing to look at the random, meaningless world and to assign meaning to it. Because we're skeptical. We don't believe there is any inherent meaning to things. But the world that God created and testifies to is, is laden with meaning. Everything signifies. It all speaks to a higher reality, including us, including ourselves. Our text earlier showed back up in the writing of Peter in what, to me at least, this is a surprising way. But this text also comes back, and this should be familiar, especially to those of you who were with us when we worked through 
the book of Hebrews. Because the author of Hebrews actually draws from Isaiah in Hebrews chapter 2 as he's building his case for the superiority of Christ. This is Hebrews 2, verse 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And there he's quoting Psalm 22. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. I don't know about you, but when I work through Hebrews, and I read Hebrews, those quotes, they, they flow, but not perfectly. And then I go back to Isaiah and I find the text that it's being drawn from and it starts making sense to me. It starts making sense. Because that line of Isaiah's, Behold, I and the children God has given me, Isaiah continues, are signs and portents in Israel. He's talking about the people of God, the children of God, Christ talking about his brothers and sisters, his fellow heirs, and he's using these words of Isaiah that talk about the sign value of the prophet and his son sent into the world to speak the word of God. Isaiah says, I will hope in him, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. Hebrews, I will put my trust in him, behold, I and the children God has given me. A sign is a visible act accompanying a promise. God seals his promises with signs because of human weakness. If you're in Christ, then you are a living sign of hope that accompanies the word of hope, the gospel, testifying to weak human beings about the goodness of God. In other words, just as we can say a baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs that reassure us as we hear the word preached, so you hear the gospel proclaimed and then you see it acted out. What I'm saying to you is, as we are sent into the world and we testify to the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, by our lives we also signify it. Our lives speak to it. They reassure the weak hearer that there's truth in the promises. This is our value signs. So in conclusion, don't let being a stumbling block lead you to fear the world. Because sometimes people receive the truth as a stumbling block, and let's be honest, it's not pleasant to be the person everyone's tripping over. It's a natural desire that we have to smooth out our rough edges to get along with the world a little better, not always to be quite so offensive, quite so aggressive and contradictory. We tone it down a little bit. We look for ways that we can show love that will be seen as love by people who don't love Jesus. And that's the way that we try to not be so offensive. But when you go down that road far enough, you don't just like, like stop being offensive, but you start to share in the fear that shapes the world. And you start to stumble where the world stumbles. And you start to find that when you look at your fellow Christians, they seem a little offensive to you. And you wish they would just be a little like toned down, a little bit less aggressive. 
if you've ever found yourself embarrassed by the witness of Christians. It may be because you've feared what the world has feared and you've allowed the desire not to be a stumbling block to, to influence you in that regard. Instead, let your words and your life give a ready answer. When you let your hope in Christ be a sign to the world, then your faithfulness becomes a sign that backs up the promise of the gospel. Like it serves a purpose. Like when we, when we soften those rough edges, when we strive to be as inoffensive as possible, we don't just modify the gospel that we're meant to proclaim, but we also remove ourselves as the living signs that bear witness to its truth. The signs that are meant to assure the weak who hear but need to see in order to believe. So let your words and your life give a ready answer, which is just another way of saying don't just testify. You've got to signify as well. God reveals himself in words and also in signs. He gives us signs to strengthen us in our weakness. And he makes us into signs to strengthen the weakness of others. You're a sign of the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Your children are signs of that hope, signifying that hope to the world. Do not fear any longer what the world fears. Do not fear the opinion of the world either. Instead, honor Christ the Lord as holy and be a sign to Him. A holy sign signifying the promise of the Gospel to the world. Jesus Christ has sent you. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.